Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back. My name is Angelina Davidova. I'm an environmental journalist and an expert in environmental and climate cooperation who came all the way from St. Petersburg to San Francisco. And uh, it's a great honor for me to be present here at the Fort Ross Dialogue and to be the moderator of our final session, which is called Next Generation Connections, Working Together. We have four wonderful panelists today, and we're going to have prospects and views and expectations of the future development of U.S.-Russia relations in the area of arms control and non-proliferation, of scientific and technology cooperation, and also cooperation in the area of business entrepreneurship and climate and environment. And uh, it's a great honor for me to present our first speaker, uh, Vladislav Chernovsky, who is a graduate student and in the dual degree in non-proliferation studies program of the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey and Moscow State Institute of International Relations, Mgimo. Vladislav, please. Yeah, thank you for the introduction, Angelina. Uh, thank you, Sarah and the Fort Ross Foundation. I'm very glad to be here today. This is the first time when I'm speaking on such a specific subject to such a broad audience in such a short time, but I'll try my best to be as informative and brief as possible. Uh, when we're talking about the non-proliferation arms control, we have to look at the past. We all know that since the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis, the Soviet Union and the United States started treating their... Um, Nuclear policies very differently. Uh, they played a crucial role in creating and sustaining a global non-proliferation regime. And after a series of treaties, joint agreements, uh, summits, and other joint programs, uh, the superpowers' nuclear arsenals have uh, been reduced by more than 85% compared to the peak of the Cold War. In my opinion, uh, this was first and foremost the product of a common understanding that existed between the two countries of the uh, common understanding of the need to create and sustain a global nuclear regime, the need to uh, avoid nuclear war at all costs, and an underst uh, understanding of how easy it is to slip into one by accident. It led the superpowers in the midst of the Cold War to work together and compromise on many contentious issues they had uh, with each other. As the Soviet Union's foreign minister at the time, Andrei Gromyko, put it, Arms control and amplification uh, has been the only silk thread con connecting the two countries during the darkest of times. Today's situation could not be more different. The arms control mechanism, we all know, is uh, falling apart, as we know it, uh, and virtually all forms of productive strategic dialogue between the two largest nuclear weapon countries in the world uh, are stalling. Uh, Ambassador Antonov talked at length about the ANF Treaty and the New START Treaty and issues connected to that. Um, I'm not going to go into much detail about it, uh, but those examples clearly show us the lack of political will on the part of um, the current leaders to engage with each other on those important strategic issues. Uh, I would say that today the notion of nuclear weapons is an inev inevitable reality and a sort of a, uh, that they play a vital role in national and sometimes even international security. Uh, as a deterrence tool, has become normalized in both Russia and the United States. So it is an issue of uh, complacency at large. It removes the political will 
uh, to move the arms control negotiations forward. Uh, we need an attempt to at least partially snap out of the deeply adversarial uh, logic which governs our relationship at the time and still applying it to at least the area of cooperation on nuclear disarmament and non-proliferation. And in my opinion, at this moment, uh, from my experience, the only area in which I see real positive dynamic happening today and which can potentially bring uh, about some change is the area of joint disarmament and non-proliferation educational initiatives between Russia and the United States. And when I say that, I mean both the uh, education of the public through raising public awareness and the education of a new generation of experts who would be um, working as diplomats, uh, professionals in, in the non-proliferation disarmament field. Uh, if we're talking about raising public awareness, I believe that uh, the governments with, uh, uh, in partnership with civil societies have responsibility and can organize uh, public campaigns uh, raising awareness about the, uh, the threat of nuclear war uh, through um, documentaries, fiction films, web projects, uh, public lectures, things like that. I would like to uh, specifically mention the work that the Nuclear Threat Initiative and the current cooperation in New York do. In that regard, they have many wonderful projects, um, online projects on their websites that sponsor a lot of creators to sort of work uh, on this issue. And talking about the education of, uh, of a new generation of uh, experts and professionals, I would say one of the first steps that we can make is to offer more educational options for people who are interested in that area. Uh, there are only three master's programs in the world uh, that deal specifically with the issues of disarmament and proliferation. One of them is the program in which I am currently in, the program between the um, GIMA Institute and the Monterey Institute of National Studies in Monterey, um, uh, sponsored, uh, sort of created together by the uh, analytical think tank Peer Center in Russia and analytical think tank in America, uh, James Martin Center for Operation Studies. It's a great example of, of cooperation on that important issue. Um, we can also try to foster dialogue between the uh, previous generations of experts and professionals and the new generation through the so-called Track 2.5 uh, meetings where the students and the, uh, the esteemed professionals can meet and exchange their opinions uh, between each other. Uh, I would also say that another important area is uh, conducting vocational programs for um, already experts and young professionals. Um, as such, I would say that uh, both Peer Center and the James Martin CNS do a great job. They have a visiting experts program, and Peer Center has a summer school in which they do just that. Those programs can be expanded. More think tanks can engage in that. Uh, the governance more can provide more funding for such programs. And so the bottom line here is that despite the current stalemate in the arms control process, Russia and the United States have the power to turn it around because uh, most of the conditions and tools that we used in the past that facilitated the positive dynamic in the past um, can be brought back provided there is a political intent. So the only thing we need to do now is to bring the political intent back through the public pressure, as it has been mentioned before, uh, through training and raising a new generation of experts. Um, so I would say I'll conclude now. Uh, thank you for your attention. Um, thank you, Vladislav, for giving an overview of such a difficult topic and also for coming up with very concrete ideas and suggestions for future cooperation. They are indeed very useful. 
And I would like to pass on the word to our next speaker, who is uh, Jake Heckler. He's a graduate student at the University of California, Berkeley, in the Department of Nuclear Engineering. Jake is going to speak to us about uh, U.S.-Russia cooperation in technology and science sectors. Yes, please. Thank you, Angelina. As Angelina mentioned, I'm a graduate student at the University of California, Berkeley. There I work on technologies directly related to non-proliferation, arms control, and a little bit of accident cleanup. I'd like to speak to you a bit today about uh, the state of my field, kind of how things exist today, and the projects that exist that I've participated in that have brought together young Russians and young Americans on a variety of topics within nuclear engineering. The U.S. and Russia nuclear communities started at the same point in 1938 when fission was discovered and branched off and evolved in isolation for effectively half a century. Our respective governments used the talents of people like us to develop some of the most fearsome arsenals that mankind has ever seen. Most people in this room are familiar with that. Many lived it. Some helped write about it. My generation of nuclear engineers and physicists have come to inherit this burden. We have inherited the terrible consequences of nuclear weapons. As Ambassador Antonov and uh, Governor Brown have discussed in detail, this is an issue of paramount importance. However, thanks to the efforts of people on the U.S. side, like Dr. Hecker, Dr. Perry, and their Russian colleagues, there's a second inheritance. And that second one is an inheritance of cooperation. In the 1990s, the United States and the Russian Federation worked together to help guard the world from the threat of lost, stolen, misappropriated nuclear material. And while more official efforts such as that have petered out in the current political climate, there are ongoing efforts to assure that my generation doesn't suffer from that same form of isolation. For the past six years, every spring and every fall, a group of early career professionals from institutions around the U.S. and institutions around Russia come together to discuss topics in arms control, non-proliferation, and how we can fight climate change using nuclear energy. Preparations for these forums include a diverse number of uh, lectures, uh, some from the Russian side, some from the U.S. side. I've had the honor to listen to lectures given by people uh, within the Russian Federation who I would normally never have the opportunity to interact with, and likewise on the Russian side. And truly impressive work has come out of these events. On a more personal note, reading about arms control issues in the abstract, say missile defense systems in Eastern Europe, is one thing. Hearing about concerns from a colleague, from a friend, is another that personal communication, the face-to-face -face dialogue, allows for a degree of nuance, of mutual understanding, and empathy that make cooperation now and in the future possible. This isn't just empty talk. These meetings have truly produced things. There's a series of eight articles in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists written by these young people on a huge array of topics dealing with everything from nuclear supply chains to climate change and non-proliferation issues. About this time next month, I'll be in Moscow continuing this work with this team. As a nuclear engineer, I feel that I have a moral obligation to work towards the reduction of nuclear stockpiles. As Dr. Perry mentioned earlier, there are 15,000 nuclear weapons in existence at the moment. This is a situation that I intend to dedicate my career to solving. 
Now, while the political and security aspects of the nuclear field have a tendency to steal the show, there's a second aspect here. Every person in this room and every person who will be in this room is threatened by climate change. And nuclear reactors provide a way of supplying baseload energy, which is inherently carbon-free. However, the resources required to actually build those reactors don't exist solely within the United States or solely within the EU or within Russia. Reactors, new reactors, require new materials, and many of the materials testing facilities are in Russia, and U.S. scientists must go there, interact with Russian scientists, and work with them. Likewise, Russian scientists need access to our accelerator facilities. As a result, this is a channel for cooperation that, regardless of political issues, must continue to stay open. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jake. Um, that was very clear. That was very precise. Uh, that also contained um, a few very specific ideas what we should do. And I very much hope that the audience here will listen to these ideas. And I very much hope that a few people from the audience will come to you after the doc and will maybe suggest some very concrete cooperation projects. So thank you once again for that. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. Margot Poda is pursuing a joint MBA-MA program in international policy and development at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey to further develop key business skills concentrating on the global entrepreneurship ecosystem. And she's going to speak to us about U.S.-Russia cooperation in the area of business and environment. Please. Entrepreneurship, but yeah. yes. Um, okay, so for the last two years, um, even longer than that, honestly, I've been studying the challenges of entrepreneurial collaboration between the U.S. and Russia with a focus on university-level entrepreneurs. So these people are even younger than myself. They're, you know, 16 or even younger sometimes. It's really inspirational what these people come up with. And what I've found is not particularly groundbreaking, um, but <laughs> to be honest, but um, what has stood out to me is the fact that entrepreneurs, regardless of where they are in the world, really encounter the same problems. Of course, whether you're in Russia or the U.S. or China or whichever country, there are going to be specific bureaucratic um, issues that are hard to manage. Um, but in general, your average startup, you know, they're going to encounter problems of self-promotion, um, learning how to you know, how to finance and find a market fit for your company. Um, and it's been really interesting speaking to entrepreneurs both in Russia and the U.S. Um, and interviewing them about these problems and how they have been supported or not so supported in their own countries. Um, so what I've found most of all interesting is that these problems are most, awfully, uh, most <laughs> often mitigated uh, by learning from either personal experience, so the idea of failing fast and trying again, or, um, you know, hearing about other people's problems and learning from them through mentorship programs. Um, so proper mentorship and education that allows you to fail again and again are vital in learning how to run a business from the very beginning. 
Um, so in Russia in particular, uh, these challengers, of course, are amplified by market conditions and perception of just Russia and in general. And I think this is, you know, when I talked to these people originally, I was like, wow, this is really depressing. Like people in Silicon Valley aren't hiring Russians because of, you know, what CNN is saying. And you're like, that's, that can't be true. Um, but of course there's a lot of opportunities for them as well. Um, and it's kind of uh, inspirational again to speak to these people and learn from them. So, uh, in one example, um, I spent the last couple months in Moscow and Vladivostok, uh, and I spoke with two entrepreneurs. <laughs> uh, one was in the NSF right here in San Francisco and the other in Moscow, and they're both working in the space of micromobility. So like the scooters and the, you know, the bikes that you see running around and all kinds of things like that. Um, I know it's a huge topic right now in San Francisco, and I had not known or even thought about how much of a big topic it is in Moscow, but it makes sense. Um, and it amazed me to the extent that they were both experiencing the same problems um, with regards to how to source their, their products, various tech challenges, and of course, bureaucratic ones, which I found were, you know, astoundingly similar. So I was talking to these people and I was like, wow, you guys should really meet each other. And uh, I introduced them to each other in this very informal way. And, um, you know, they have been speaking and learning from each other. And I find this is quite... Um, wonderful. <laughs> there should be more of this, but I can't be the only one doing this, of course. Um, so it reiterated to me how much speaking um, in this sort of informal way and learning from each other at a very low level and not engaging necessarily the high diplomatic levels can be in the business world. Um, so what we need is this greater contract, because uh, and but this can't happen in a black box. Uh, what's important is to actually have action from those who are in power, so that they can make structural change and improve the environment as a whole for these nascent investors. Um, so cross-cultural communication is the first step. You know, one-on-one -on -one talking, uh, peer advising, uh, finding mentors in areas uh, that are similar but have a you know similar challenges, different environment, that kind of thing. Um, and address this reality that all entrepreneurs encounter the same problems regardless of where they are. Um, so with regards to U.S. and Russia, this is, of course, getting harder and harder as of late. Um, but I think of what can be accomplished, you know, at a, at a grander level, simply with, as many people have mentioned earlier today, simplifying visa processes. Um, I'm probably attending a conference in uh, Moscow in November, and I'm I just like I'm so happy that I already have a Russian visa, so I don't have to go through that process again. Um, and I can't imagine. I mean, I have heard from friends in Russia; it's just as hard, if not harder, to get into the U.S. simply to apply for jobs and things like that. So the consequences of this lack of communication uh, range from you know just generally. <laughs> you know, travel from apathy towards one another to uh, full-on confrontation. And of course, we want it to be a positive attitude. And I would hate for my generation, as well as the future generations, to have such disinterest in each other that they don't want to communicate and learn from each other. Um, so I want us to be curious and find innovative solutions that are applicable across borders. Um, and when I speak to these uh, university-level entrepreneurs, they're so optimistic. And I just, I want to capture that and sort of broadcast it to the world. Um, so <laughs> I think that people my age really want to see action, um, but inaction really does seem to be the status quo in the U.S.-Russian relationship. Um, so I hope that we can change that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.
Uh, thank you, Margot, for sharing with us the results of your research and also for bringing up quite a few personal experiences and personal stories from your travels to Russia. I think it is very often that those personal stories which make our experience and also future cooperation potential between the most con uh, between the two countries to be uh, mostly successful and also effective. And uh, I very much hope that research <laughs> projects like this will continue. Me too. Um, okay, so now I'm changing roles. And um, from a moderator, I become one of the speakers. And I'm someone who is supposed to talk about environmental and climate cooperation between U.S. and Russia. And I'll start by saying that I spent um, last year, um, summer 2000. 18 to 2019 here in California at UC Davis, being one of the Humphrey Fellows um, in a program which was dedicated to environmental science and environmental policy. And I learned a lot. I met a lot of amazing people and uh, I did a lot. I spoke a lot. I went to various events. And um, not only did I bring all this knowledge back to Russia with me in um, July this year when I came back, uh, and as you see, I'm very often back again here in California for, for some time. Um, I also started bringing people from California to Russia. So uh, um, in early July, I brought a speaker from San Francisco Environment to speak in Moscow at the Moscow Urban Forum about recycling system in San Francisco and also sharing her experience about how Moscow can profit from that experience. In early September, I brought three further speakers from California, one from UC Davis, one from UC Berkeley, and from, from a theater company in Davis to a city's climate forum, also in Moscow, to speak about their experiences. And um, I'm planning to um, extend these activities and bring even more people both ways. And this is, in many ways, what I... All everything I learned during the program, all the contacts I got, they I very much hope to use them and to um, extend that cooperation. So um, uh, why is it important? Cooperation, environmental cooperation between Russia and the U.S. has been going for quite a number of years, and the program varied from cooperation between uh, nature reserve areas and management of nature reserve areas up to programs in the area of like very specific research cooperation programs, for example, the Baikal-Tahoe program. And uh, quite a number of these programs are still running. A number of them have significantly shrunk, and a number of them like financing, and a number of them have even been closed down. I find this to be particularly sad because... Uh, Cooperation in the areas of environment and climate, uh, those are cooperation for the global good. Those are cooperation for the global topics out of which we all benefit. Those are cooperation areas for the future of our planet and for the present of our planet, for air, for water, for forest, for climate. And this is why it is so particularly important to develop further cooperation programs, especially since there's a lot of interest on both sides. Like all of the speakers, I can say from my experience, which I, which were present in Moscow and speaking uh, at various forums, they got a lot of questions, they got a lot of contacts, they all got a lot of interest from the audience. And there is growing environmental awareness in Russia. 
There is growing interest towards issues like recycling, sustainable city development, resilient cities, many other topics. And um, uh, as you probably know, Russia has recently joined the Paris Agreement and announced about it two weeks ago in New York during the New York uh, Secretary General United Nations Climate Summit. And um, uh, these topics are of very huge importance, and this is why I personally find that this particular area of cooperation needs to be supported. And likewise, whenever I'm here and whenever I'm speaking about what's happening back in Russia, there's a lot of interest about what's happening in Russia and how can we cooperate with Russia further on. So having all this in mind and also preparing for this talk today, um, what I did yesterday, I posted in Facebook and a number of other platforms a call for ideas, like what, how can U.S. and Russia cooperate in environmental and climate areas in the future. And uh, I'm a very active social network user and um, uh, someone who writes a lot, tweets a lot, and blogs a lot in Russia. And so I got, um, let me see, more than um, 60 uh, replies from more than 40 experts from U.S. and Russia. Uh, most of these experts are from the environmental and climate sector. And an overall wrote down um, 34 ideas for cooperation. I don't have enough time to read through all of them. Uh, if anyone of you is interested, I could make this list later on. But among the topics, like you have everything from cooperation in the area of Arctic and mitigation and adaptation to climate change, up till marshlands and forest management, education in the area of sustainable development, green building, resilient cities, marine plastic, environmental film festivals, theater and art festivals, environmental monitoring data, ecosystem services, quite a number of topics. And I just very much hope that uh, speaking to an audience like this will also help develop further cooperation projects, especially since the Fort Ross Conservancy, as I'm informed, is also looking forward to developing um, its further um, directions of uh, environmental programs, including the Environmental Living Program and the Marine Ecology Program. And uh, I very much look forward to further cooperation projects in the area of environment and climate. And I hope very much to be able to contribute to them personally. Thank you. <laughs> With this, I pass the virtual microphone back to Margot. And uh, she's about to tell you a few very <laughs> practical ideas which four of us developed in a meeting which took place a few hours ago yes. in a coffee shop not that far from this place. Yes. And those is those ideas are our vision for future cooperation and future formats of work and cooperation, mm -hmm. both for U.S.-Russia cooperation in general in the topics we mentioned, but also for the Fort Ross dialogue in, in future. <laughs> okay, yeah, we are real grad students. We definitely uh, wake up with caffeine in the morning, so peace <laughs> was necessary. Um, so, of course, today we've heard from a very diverse group of people at various levels of government and life, down to the lowly grad student. Um, but I really want to go back to something that Jerry Brown said earlier today, which was dialogue is having a conversation with someone who does not agree with you. And I say, yes, that is very true. But also in terms of U.S.-Russia relations, we do have to have dialogue with people who do agree with you, but maybe not in this one issue. 
Um, I have plenty of friends and family in California who are like, oh my God, why do you study Russia? It's just a horrible place. So I think one of the most things that everybody in this room can do is become an advocate for Russia in your real life, whether that's consulting, politics, think tanks, I don't know, your afternoon dance class, like literally anything you can talk about. Wow. Like it's a place you should go. You should meet Russians. You should try Russian food. These are very simple things that you can do to sort of improve perception overall. Um, and so just in terms of Fort Ross, uh, when we were brainstorming earlier, uh, basic things, I mean, just at Fort Ross itself, including other panels, not unlike the one beforehand, before us, which I thought was fascinating and wonderful. I was looking forward to it as soon as Sarah told me about it. Um, but also including, um, you know, looking to culture, other aspects of culture, like dance and art as a way of connecting. These things have worked in the past. Um, and I don't know anything really about non-proliferation, but there's plenty like a panel devoted to just specifically deep diving into what can help with disarmament. Um, and so, <laughs> so my plea in the end, it may be small, is that, you know, following this dialogue, we take, you know, these little steps and little conversations in our own lives, um, to take, you know, a step in the right direction and use our connections. And I can say new friends and old friends from this panel. Um, and sort of make small changes in our lives to sort of, you know, improve everybody's life as a whole. And I hope that's a good optimistic note to end on, <laughs> which I tried to. <laughs> and I'd like to add just one last thing. The reason I'm here today is because five years ago, a professor at MIT, Mike Short, sent me to work in a lab at Moscow Engineering Physics Institute. All of you academics in the audience, I know there are quite a few of you, please be courageous. Send your students to Russia. <laughs> yes. Thank you. <laughs> well, with this, I would very much like to thank our speakers of this last panel of the Fort Ross Dialogue 2019. I would like to thank you, the audience, for your interest and participation. And I would like to thank the organizers of the forum. And with this, I'm concluding the session. <laughs>